With a potential shutdown on the horizon, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services already has its hands full trying to decipher who no longer qualifies for Medicaid coverage now that we're on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic. The process has already been hampered with a few issues, and a shutdown could make them worse. To find out how, I spoke with Kelly Whitener, who is an associate professor of the practice at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy Center for Children and Families. From the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and during the three years or so following the onset, Medicaid renewals were on pause. So everyone, and this was under the direction of Congress, Families First Responsibility Act. So during those three year, that three-year period, states were required to keep everybody who enrolled in Medicaid enrolled, and they got extra federal funding in exchange for that. Starting March 31st of this year, that continuous coverage requirement ended, and states started this process that we call the Medicaid unwinding of renewing everyone enrolled. So their states are currently processing renewals for over 90 million people. And this is a huge administrative task. Uh, The only thing we've seen in recent history that's even at all comparable was in 2014 when states switched their Medicaid eligibility income counting rules to modified adjusted gross income. That was also a major undertaking, but I think this is actually even bigger. So in these reviews, are they making judgment calls on, you know, who qualifies and whatnot? And the qualifications have obviously changed since the pandemic and you know people are back to well, things are back to somewhat normal. Exactly. So Medicaid eligibility is determined based on a couple of different factors, but income is a big one. State residency, age disability status. There's also lots of other pieces, but income is a big one. And now states are tasked with determining, are the people currently enrolled still eligible? Do they still meet those income standards? Do they still meet the other standards? And there's a certain amount of that process that can be done in an automated way because we have, you know, data systems that can check and see, you know, how have wages changed or how has your family income changed, but that doesn't work out for everybody. You know, it can also, changes could be brought about by your household size changing, right? You Maybe you have a baby, now you have a bigger household, you know, so it changes how the income counting rules work. So it's really a tremendous undertaking that has to be done on an individual basis going through and identifying whether the people currently enrolled are still eligible. And there's a big part of that that has to rely on systems, but there's also a part of that that has to rely on checking in with the person. And of course, we know that people moved a lot during the pandemic. So addresses may be out of date. We've also seen you know big delays in mail. So you might get information from the Medicaid agency asking you, you know, to confirm various data points. But by the time you receive that packet, you've already missed the deadline. So it can be really a tough process. And this started March of earlier this year, 2023, before all the shutdown talk started. How was the agency going? Did they have goals that they set of how many they wanted to be through by the end of the year? And if so, were they you know, on their way towards achieving that? So it really is a state-driven process. The agency set out the rules 
and allowed states to choose when to start their process and within some parameters how quickly to move. Most states started April-ish and are planning to process all of their renewals over a 12-month period. But as far as how it's been going, I would say not well. There have been millions of people that have been disenrolled, and a majority of those disenrollments have been for procedural reasons. And what I mean by that is that the state agency wasn't able to determine whether the person was eligible or ineligible based on those data sources and systems checks and didn't get information back in a timely way. So they disenrolled the person without knowing if they're actually eligible. And we know from previous experience with Medicaid enrollments and estimates from people like ASPE at HHS that a large share of people that are procedurally disenrolled are actually still eligible, but just for some reason, you know, didn't get through those paperwork hurdles on time. So millions of people have been disenrolled. We believe that a large share of them are actually still eligible, but now they've just lost their health coverage. When that happens, who is that on and I know that there are probably you know different cases and a lot of variables, but is it because of a lack of communication between the state and uh, CMS, or is it you know some of the onus also on the applicant just not getting that paperwork in in time? It's a little bit of everything, right? I think what I try to think about is you know what would it be like for me, and I know that you know life is hectic. And things come in the mail that sometimes take me a little while to open. Um, And then if it's a complicated, you know, packet of questions, that's going to take me a little while to fill it out and get it back. And I moved during the pandemic. So I know that I'm still getting mail forwarded from another address and that, you know, takes a while. So I think there is a certain amount of everybody trying their best to make the system work and it doesn't always work. You know, so it could be that the state agency is doing their best, the families are doing their best, but it still just isn't coming together in a timely way to keep that coverage. And then I think there are also, you know, other problems happening. CMS discovered um, over the summer that some of the automated processes that we call ex parte weren't happening correctly at the state level. And so they sent out a letter to all states asking them to check their systems and make sure the system was running the eligibility on an individual basis. And they just announced the summary findings from that assessment last week. And about half of states, the system is not doing it correctly. So we know that people have been losing coverage inappropriately And now those states are going to have to pause those procedural disenrollments and reinstate the people impacted. And the estimates are that it's about 500,000 kids and families that have been incorrectly terminated. And that's happening right now. We're in the middle of it. So when you think about what that means in connection with a government shutdown, you really could see kind of a perfect storm, that there's a lot of technical assistance right now back and forth between CMS and the state Medicaid agencies. There's a lot of work going into mitigation strategies to try to fix these systems issues. And all of that will have to pause 
for the duration of a shutdown. The longer the shutdown lasts, the harder it is to catch up, the more problems that pile on. So you could see that this problem of already over 500,000 people that lost coverage inappropriately could get bigger and bigger and bigger. And politically speaking, much like troops pay, it's used as a way to try and guilt one side or the other to try and move them along saying, you know, you've got kids out there that are not getting their health coverage. Is that actually the case? Will there be some uninsured children because of a shutdown, you know, no matter who's to blame? Yes, especially because of this unwinding process that's happening right now. We know there are children that have lost their coverage inappropriately. And CMS and states are in the process of trying to fix that. (laughs) And the state work will go on despite a shutdown, but they won't have their federal partner there to help them sort through, you know, how best to, to reinstate that coverage. This is only one example of all of the different ways the government shutdown has a harmful impact on the lives of people and on our government functioning. I know your listeners know that from all of the reporting you've done on it. But, you know, it just really it's upsetting that this is what it's come to again. Kelly Whitener is an associate professor of the practice at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy Center for Children and Families. You can find this interview along with a link to her column at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's um, 
it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.